I was just drawn to it like a magnet, and I was just listening to it intently. And all of a sudden, I said, I, I have got to pull off the freeway here. I found the nearest telephone booth. I uh, called my wife and said, you have got to turn on 90.7 FM. I will talk to you when I get home. This is incredible. What I noticed was different right away was that people were being interviewed at length. And when they were talking about the purpose for the station, the reason for being was to promote understanding among peoples of all races and, and uh, from all countries and all classes and to provide information about the events of the world that were not reported or not reported completely or in-depth by any of the other major news outlets, uh, broadcast or print. And I just thought that was phenomenal. And I, I've been blessed ever since. 90.7 KPFK, Los Angeles. From the front lines, this is Eric Mann, your host, and we're excited about the show today. Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. We're going to begin with my analysis of the six must know provisions of the new death ceiling. First, it's a commentary by Politico about all the deals that Joe Biden made, and it'll be my commentary further on those deals. Then we're going to have uh, both commentary by me again on uh, the great Nina Simone, Love Me or Leave Me, in a particular classic version on the Ed Sullivan Show where she does a terrific piano, long, long, long solo. Then there'll be a conversation with the new co-director of the Strategy Center, Channing Martinez and myself, we are now co-directors. And then 
I'm going to do my version of what becomes of the broken hearted, which is, of course, Jimmy Ruffin's song, and I'm going to do my best version, and then we'll be out. I really need to know that you're out there. If you could please send emails to Eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com to know you're out there and help us build listenership for the show. So good morning, Voices listeners. Happy Tuesday morning. One of the things I'm going to start doing on the show more, and you're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web on kpfk.org and on a very cool places, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. It's usually up the next day. Also, it's a podcast, which you can get on any of the podcast stations. So one feature I'm going to try to do in the beginning of the show is a deeper analysis of a commentary on some of the issues facing us. And often I'm going to use articles because the articles are very factual. They are in some ways my commentators and they're very sharp. And then I'll comment on the situation. So let me start with the idea. The headline is Joe Biden gives away our rights in the new debt ceiling deal. Joe Biden sells out the poor. Joe Biden sells out student loan deferments. Or the short headline is Joe Biden sells out. But it's very serious. It's very serious for us to understand. I watch a lot of movies about everything, but I watch a lot of movies about World War II. And I studied the whole question of the so-called Munich Agreement. And in that agreement, uh, Hitler went to the British and the French and the Americans and said, if you give me Czechoslovakia, I won't invade anymore. That'll be the end. I just want Czechoslovakia. Well, of course, that would be fine unless you were Czechoslovakia. But the United States was willing to give away, and the British mainly, were willing to give away the rights of the people in Czechoslovakia uh, so Hitler had nothing to lose. He said, give me Czechoslovakia or we'll go to war. So they gave him Czechoslovakia and then he went to war. And then he took Poland. And they said, well, I thought you weren't gonna, I thought you were going to stop at Czechoslovakia. And Hitler said, are you stupid? I'm a Nazi. You, got, you liberals are so stupid. You knew this wasn't going to work. So Joe Biden is dealing with what's called a debt ceiling. Now what that means is the United States can't have a ceiling on its debt because the economy is based on constantly uh, having enough money to pay for all the debts. So basically what happens is if you don't expand the debt ceiling, theoretically the United States currency is not viable because there's not enough money to back it up. Well, this is done every year by both parties. You just raise the debt ceiling. It's not a big thing, but the Republicans, smart as they are, because, you know, the Democrats are very stupid and the Republicans are very smart. So the Republicans take advantage of this debt ceiling negotiation to say, I'm going to get something from the Democrats in return for agreeing to it. Now, one thing I got to give the Democrats credit for, they don't ask for a damn thing and they get less. I mean, if two parties are negotiating... And one party says, I want this, I want that. And the other party says, please, please don't take that note. How about just this? How about Czechoslovakia, but not Poland? You're giving away other people's land. You're giving away other people's rights. So Joe Biden being a very, uh, well, it's not just weak. You have to understand that the Democrats and the Republicans are getting closer and closer because Joe Biden is a center-right Democrat. He's not a left-wing Democrat. So he's not that far away from McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy. So now, in that context, let's be clear. He gave away food stamps. He agreed to keep his own cut on student loans and other things that I'll explain to you in the article. And this is from Politico.com. Okay, 
Now I'm going to read you their article and I'll comment as I go through the article. Uh, the policy provisions of the agreement between President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy appear to fall short of conservative demands. I'm sorry. It fell short of conservative demands. Note there were no liberal demands. So you're bargaining, it's called bargaining against yourself. The debt ceiling that President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck late Saturday is a true meet-you-halfway compromise between the stark ultimatums the leaders have issued for months. Now, hear the compromise, though. It's a far cry from the clean increase Biden has sought for the nation's $31.4 trillion borrowing cap. The bipartisan agreement is also much less punchy than a sweeping package House Republicans passed last month as they demanded drastic spending cuts, major cuts in energy permitting rules, and an end to many of Biden's signature accomplishments, including student loan forgiveness and pieces of the Inflation Reduction Act. So let me interpret that. You and I are negotiating, and I say, I put a gun to your head and I say, give me a thousand dollars. And you say, I will not give you $1,000. So then you give me $500 and we call it a compromise. Sounds good to me. I just stole $500. And you think it's a compromise because you kept the last $500. But none of my money was on the table. So the compromise was the Republicans wanted everything and they got half of what they wanted. And Joe Biden wanted nothing and they got half of nothing. Okay, so let's look at the specifics. Work requirements. The deal would tighten restrictions on the SNAP program, as well as emergency cash aid knows as temporary assistance for needy families. This means, folks, it used to be called aid to families with dependent children. Bill Clinton cut that, destroyed that, and changed it to temporary aid to needy families, meaning not all black families, not all poor white families, but needy families and temporary. So the first criminal on this is Bill and Hillary Clinton. But now the Republicans are asking further cuts in the program as follows. New time limits will be phased in for people without children up to 54 to receive food assistance through SNAP if they do not complete certain work requirements. Under current law, those time limits only apply to people up to 49 years old. Those expanded limits will sunset in 2030. So what does that mean? It means that right now, if you're 48 years old, they have to force you to work. If you're 49 years old, you're starving to death. They'll give you some small amount of uh, food stamps. Now they're pushing the age to 54. They say, until you're 54... You can't get food stamps unless you meet certain work requirements, like maybe working on a chain gang or working for, you know, six bucks an hour or whatever. It forces people without children back into the workforce. And if they ha can't get in the workforce, they cut their food stamps. Now, how in the world in this compromise is the first thing that the Democrats gave away is food? to people who are starving. And I'm serious, for you Democrats out there, there is a time to be thoroughly ashamed of Biden and Harris, you know, which was about, what, four years ago, you should have been ashamed. Okay, but this is serious stuff. Now, Democrats secured some exemption, some exemptions for homeless people and veterans. Very nice of them. But the move will still enrage a wide swath of congressional Democrats especially key progressives who pleaded with the White House in recent days to reject any concessions for aid programs. Now, what did Biden do? He went behind closed doors with McCarthy. He was told not to do that. He was told to be transparent. But the, you got to put it on the responsibility of the progressive Democrats because what are you so upset about? The president went behind closed doors and gave her the rights. He said, please don't do that. You think Joe Biden uh, cares that you told him, please don't do that? 
you have nowhere to go. So you give away the food stamps and the progressives claim they're disappointed. This is serious stuff. Another one, COVID aid clawbacks. The deal would take back billions of dollars in unspent COVID relief funds. Congress has doled out since 2020, impacting a wide range of current and future health efforts. Democrats recently warned that the cuts would hit vulnerable populations particularly hard, including veterans and tribal members, a.k.a. indigenous people, and undercut efforts to prepare for future pandemics. Federal health officials are sounding the alarm about the impact the cuts are likely to have on state and local health departments' work on HIV, other STDs, and new viral outbreaks such as MPOX. MPOX, MPOX. Democrats also highlighted the cuts would delay the replenishment of the strategic national stockpile, heightening the possibility, should a new pandemic emerge, of a repeat of the early days of COVID when masks, swabs, ventilators, medication, other crucial supplies had to be ratcheted. But the White House claims the deal would protect critical funding to prepare for future pandemics and COVID surges. Now, you know, when COVID happened, of course, we looked at Trump in particular and said, the guy won't even build a national health service. He won't even, you know, he's cut all these programs. When Biden came in, he said he was going to change that and he was going to rebuild the federal health programs. The main thing they did, by the way, is give money to everybody in the middle of that economic crisis to keep the economy going. But they did not have a massive rebuild of the hospitals. So now you have leftover COVID money. Instead of giving it to build hospitals or to build up the reserves which didn't exist, this is Trumpian, but putting it another way, this is Bidenian, because this Biden is a dog, an absolute cruel man. So let's be clear. He went in the closet with McCarthy. They came out, they cut food stamps, and they cut COVID for spending as an actual crime. And now the economy is going to be refunded. And guess what, folks? The stock market is going through the roof. So don't feel that depressed. For all the poor people out there who have no food or no medical care, all your stocks are going way up. So this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. And I think we all have to look at the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. candidacy very seriously as an alternative to Mr. Biden. I think it's going to cause the first debate in the Democratic Party. Because you progressives, uh, you gave away the story. You're to blame more than Biden because you can't be outraged. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart So everybody, you know, bring you more music to your mornings on Voices from the Frontlines. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. And go find our podcast on voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And please subscribe. Go on the site and just subscribe, and you'll get a weekly newsletter when we put it out about the show. And you'll also be getting the podcast, which comes out as another email. So I'm going to talk to you about Nina Simone. The song we're going to play is Love Me or Leave Me. Now, going on YouTube to find Love Me or Leave Me from the Central Park Blues album, I found Nina Simone and Ed Sullivan. Uh, I won't go into the whole thing. People of our age who knew the Ed Sullivan show, but it was a big thing right now. That's when the Beatles came on it. So there's a very young Nina Simone playing Central Park Blues. It's the best version of it I've ever heard, so I'm going to just tell you a little backstory. In my probably junior year in high school, or maybe senior, they had a mock 
political convention. And, you know, you were supposed to vote for last term, but Stuart Symington is one of the candidates. Everybody could pick a candidate. So I initiated this protest candidate called Tom Jones. Why the heck I did that? Just because I always protest. It was sort of saying already, we don't believe in any of these candidates. It captured everybody's imagination. And it's kind of messed up their mock political convention because everybody wanted to vote for Tom Jones until they pushed us off the ballot. But in the process of that, I met this very cool guy named Kevin Crown. I was in Valley Stream, Long Island, which was very backward, all white, and very backward, if I didn't make that clear. Kevin Crown lived also in Long Island, but was very worldly. I mean, he took me into places I didn't even know. We went into New York, and we went to Birdland. And if you can imagine this, the first show I ever saw was Michael Olatunji and the Drums of Passion and Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. I said to him, these people are two pretty great. Yeah, no kidding. They're giants in the field. So similarly, I went to this party at his house. And he allegedly knew Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. But he had great music on all night. And all of a sudden, this voice came on and you know, like on The Voice, where somebody sings two notes and all the chairs go around? It was like within two notes. I said, who is this person? And of course, that person was Nina Simone. And she was singing from the album Central Park Blues, which might have been, if not our first, one of our very first albums, because this is 1959, 1960. So I want to tell you all the songs on it first, because I want you to go get it um, here with Julian Lamb, our producer, and I want to run a lot of these, you know, over the year. So it's Mood Indigo, Don't Smoke in Bed, He Needs Me, Little Girl Blue, Love Me or Leave Me, which you're going to hear, My Baby Just Cares for Me, which we're also going to play, that's another one of our great ones, Good Bait, Plain Gold Ring, You'll Never Walk Alone, Oh My God, I Loves You Porgy, is heartbreaking that she does, Cotton Eyed Joe, the other woman, you can have them, exactly like you, black is the car, my true love's hair. So in searching for it, as I said, I found this cut from Ed Sullivan. What's great about that is when I was listening to her, I kept thinking, all these chords she's playing, it's like a Bach chorale in the middle of jazz, which turned out was right. She's classically trained. But on this recording, she goes deeper into the piano than on the album. So it's pretty phenomenal. And so with this, the extraordinary, one-of-a-kind Nina Simone singing and playing Love Me or Leave Me.
So, hey, everybody, we have great news. Uh, you know, Channing and Martinez and I have been sort of co-everything, co-hosts of Voices, but now we're co-directors of the Labor Community Strategy Center, something I've been very excited about. Later on, I'll tell you my thoughts on it. But this Saturday, June 3rd, at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center from 12 to 3, it's open to the public. We're going to have a public celebration of what we call the Extended Leadership Team at the Strategy Center, which is now Channing Martinez and Eric Mann as co-directors, Barbalat Holland as Associate Director, and Akuna Uka as Coordinator of Volunteer Programs. And yes, three of the four people are black, and we're moving to be a multiracial but overwhelmingly black organization. Um, there's a new uh, funding form that asks you to put people in different ages, and they're very nice to say the highest age is over 40. So I'm really excited about that now. So I'm just saying I'm over 40. But uh, it's true. But Channing Martinez is under 40. And uh, I'm a Jew, and he's black, and we've worked together for certainly closely since 2015, which is now eight years of very intense co-work. So Channing Martinez, the, the first thing is at the psychological level, what does it mean in your own mind? Do you feel different now that you're the recognized co-director? <laughs> uh, slightly different, yes, I would say. I mean, there's always the demons that are in your head. So the demons of, am I really good enough? Am I really worth this? Do I really know what I'm doing? So there's, there's you know, be quite honest, there's a, a bit of that. Sure. Uh, but then there is also a bit of hopefulness because there's always hopefulness and optimism of, you know, being able to think through the vision of the organization and the trajectory of the organization. Um, and uh, I hate to end it that this way, but uh, the last piece is there is a bit of worry because now you are in charge of the organization. And so every day i'm in my mind thinking are we doing enough of this are we doing enough of that i gotta write to such and such oh my god did i forget to invite this person we could ra raise money this way we can cut this cost and so many things and uh decisions that need to be made for the organization well it's interesting psychologically you were talking to yourself when you said you were the director but it's the microphone you said you were the director meaning me Instead of saying, I am the director. Oh, uh, you're right. <laughs> so, but it, No, no, it's okay, because you are the director, <laughs> no matter how you say it. But th that's why you're co-director. I want to tell you, the listeners, some thoughts about it. Um, this is a thrill for me. It's a high point or one of the high points of my life, because at the Strategy Center, it's really important to a lot of people listening in the national movement. There's, I don't want to just say funding, there's, there's social pressure to promote, you know, we know we'd like an overwhelmingly black organization, or you know you want more women in leadership, or queer people in leadership, more young people in leadership. Those are legitimate aspirations, and any good organization should have a plan. But the worst plan is to promote people before they're ready. That's when the imposter syndrome really comes in, because in some way you are an imposter, but you've been placed in that position by an organization that wasn't looking out for you. So I would never do that to you, and, and you would not accept it. So when Barbara Lott Holland became associate director, she was already associate director. When Tammy Banglou became associate director, she was already associate director. When Manuel Criollo became director of organizing, he already was director of organizing. We do not promote people into positions and ask them to learn the position. Uh, you continue to learn the position. I mean, I welcome to the club. I mean, now we'll both be up at three in the morning saying, should I have called this person and didn't I call this person? I swear, I have a three o'clock almost wake up anxiety attack. I go down, I send emails, write myself notes and go back to bed. But you've already been like that. Yep. You know what I mean? You're a very responsible person, Janning. And the other thing I'll say back to you and you'll 
Oh, you go first. So tell us, tell us about our relationship. What's our relationship like from your point of view? Uh, it's very dynamic. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I'm still learning about relationships, so I, I'm learning that I don't fully know how to conceptualize relationships, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, but I would say, yeah, it's very dynamic. Um, you know, I I tend to be sort of operations-focused and logistical-focused, um, and even I think we both do the creativity. I'm I'm sort of like the graphical part of the creativity. You're more of the writing and thought part of the creativity. Um, so that's one. And then, so so that's one side, right? Um, the other side is you are very much into the future and seeing like 10 years from now, I see. Um, I'm trying to get to that level. <laughs> um, so that's one. Um, you're very much visionary. Um, you are also always thinking about the chess moves. Um, what are the next chess moves and the strategic moves that we should do next? Um, sorry, I have a whole different thought. <laughs> we'll finish that one. And then... uh, no, that was that was finished. Basically, that you do the strategic um, next moves. Um, I tend to have a lot of tactics. Um, but not necessarily tied to how, um, not how, um, the the timing and the the synchronization of those actions, right? right. Um, well, stay there a minute. I mean, this, folks, is, I think, an important discourse on leadership. There should be, we're going to print this up for a lot of groups around the country because this co-directorship, I think, is a big thing in the movement. And for all the other people that are running co-directorships, uh, I think you can get something from this, and we'd like to learn from you. I mean, one thing to sure is, look, I've been in the movement for over 50 years. I was I'm writing a book called I Saw a Revolution with My Own Eyes. That means that I was trained in the middle of a revolution by the best black revolutionary thinkers. Uh, we lived with Malcolm X. We lived with Martin Luther King. Uh, we lived with the Vietnamese. We lived with the Cuban Revolution. We read all their stuff. Everybody was talking about vision and strategy and revolution. So anytime you do something, people would say, well, how does that contribute to the revolution? Or how does that contribute to black liberation? Um, so I was trained, and then I read like crazy. So I read a lot of Lenin, What is to be Done, and Mao on the correct handling of the contradictions among the people and especially the analysis of the classes in the Chinese Civil War against the Japanese. And I want you to do more, you know, to build that reading in. But you're a terrific tactician. Uh, you're right, not so much on the thinking on your feet one meeting at a time, but like for instance, once we know that we're going to do an LA book fair, and once Sakuna says, we're going to do an LA book fair, you run with it. And okay. you, you make the whole thing happen. And you drive the project where people love working with you. And you're very creative inside that space, which is not a minor space. I mean, that's where we're reflected. Mm -hmm. So if you and I have a strategic conversation sometimes, or a tactical conversation, it's not like you're not in on it. You and I talk all the time. Of course. But once we agree, you are the best implementer of the plan. Plus, that's your job, you know, I mean, so, and you're very good at working with other people, so people like to work with you. And you're a real good team builder, whatever number that is in Playbook for Progressives. Um, and you help me a lot. You help me technically on, I mean, it's kind of bad, you know, but you help me when my computer is not turned on and seriously, when I can't figure out programs uh, we did a proposal together, and I could not go from the Word document to cutting and pasting it into the actual form or whatever it's called. So that's not minor things. I mean, you know, you and I, one thing we need to know, the le le listeners need to know, is you and I work together about three, four, five hours a day. So the dynamic, is, the word you said, dynamic relationship, is right. We just go back and forth 
to the point where we don't even remember whose idea was what after a while. It's just sort of a synthesis. Yeah. We, we produce a product, right? And that product yeah. is the process of you and me. Um, another one of your strengths is you're very courageous. Um, like, you're not dying to do some things, you know what I mean? Your normal personality doesn't, like I do. I, I really want to pick a fight with somebody, for instance. You're not dying to, but once you're getting good at it, you know, you always think that's the job is, you know, you work well with people, but you got to pick some fights. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So tell me about that, about personality on that issue of aggression. We know we had that long talk about aggression many years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started with the contention that I'm not ambitious. Right. <laughs> um, which, you know, now looking back at that, that's crazy ridiculous. I look because I was in charge of the social media then. Um, that was some. I mean, when you look back at the ten thirty three program, which I did a lot of social media, I still look back at that for inspiration. Like that was crazy. I mean, I showed as an example in one meme the LAUSD building and the Pentagon, and did a phone line between them and a finger cut. <laughs> That, if that's not ambitious, I don't right. know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so in retrospect, um, I am pretty ambitious. Um, but because uh, I grew up learning that ambitious is one, it comes in one form, right? right? Which is physical forcefulness and um, you, the forcefulness of your voice. Um, that mixed with the idea that you know, as a student in LAUSD, the main thing that they were trying to tame was just the normal beings of black students, which tend to be loud and pretty physically ambitious, right? And so um, what was going on in my head is uh, the twofold thing, that I both am ambitious by, by nature, but also don't want to be ambitious because it was drained in my head that you better not be an ambitious black boy in this world, otherwise it'll get you in trouble, right? Um, well, yeah, and a lot of words, you know, have double entendres, and, and they have revolutionary meaning, and they have system meaning. So, we are not ambitious. I mean, I have, we are not careerists. Uh, I, I always seek no recognition, except the recognition I want my voice heard. I want to be up on the stage because that's where I want to talk to the people in the audience. I certainly don't want to be kept off the stage, which has happened almost all the time, because I'm often the most radical voice, but I'm also have a good proposal that the other people don't want to put forward. I'm not merely a radical, I'm a strategist. So they don't want me up there because they want to think that they're the most left voice on the Thing. If I get up there, they're going to go, oh boy, you know. So I'm kept off. So therefore, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I like the word aggressive because more than ambitious because I think aggression is very important. You know, I mean, you can't live, I mean, think of all the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens and the more aggressive one won. In the jungle, the more aggressive animals win. Mm -hmm. So, the black movement is very aggressive. It's meaning it's moving forward strongly. There's a confusion that aggressive means loud or uh, self-promoting. You know, in other words, we've been given bad images, but. Martin Luther King was not nonviolent. He was aggressive as hell. He was in your face. And they hated him. Mm -hmm. But they want to act like he was nonviolent. I mean, I was, as I always say, you ask a white person when 50 black people are marching at them, yelling freedom now if that's nonviolent, and they think it's a violent attack on them, and they'll shoot back, right? Even if you're unarmed. Yeah. So learning your own form of ambition your own form of aggressiveness, not aggression, is uh, part of growing into your own political personality. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm actually um, 
taking a class right now where we get to sink into all of the patterns and practices and um, focus on nervous system regulation. And so part of that is going back and looking at your childhood and then going through every relationship you have in life and analyzing that um, and trying to even see what is behind some of the hesitation, right? And so as you said that, like I thought through uh, like the five different states of uh, being out of your um, area of comfort. And so oftentimes I go towards either freeze, meaning I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm just going to stop and act like it's not happening. Um, or fawn, and the way that the workbook describes it is as if a bear is attacking you and you go try to be friendly towards the bear that is attacking you. It's no sense um, when you put it that way. But we often do that, and I i mean, it's people-pleasing, right? And so that that is definitely a thing that I'm also working on as well. Yeah, well, the fawn didn't do too well. <laughs> no. So... Uh, <laughs> No, you know, it's interesting also. It's not automatic, you know, racially defined or nationally defined or gender defined. But there are certain things about a white man and men. So I'll start with myself. Like, when I was in CORE, there was a lot of discussion about individualism. Like, they gave me a lot, I repeat again, I was a field secretary for the Congress of Racial Equality. I worked in Harlem, I worked in the Northeast, so I worked with Brooklyn Corps, Bronx Corps, Lyon Corps, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Queens Corps, uh, Philadelphia Corps, Baltimore Corps, D.C. Corps. These were all chapters, all made up of almost all black people, and I would travel and I'd often stay in the home of the president of the chapter, who was uh, usually a black man or woman, and I would stay on their couch or stay in a guest best bedroom which was really nice. And they would teach me things. They would talk to me. And I was a good listener, and I uh, clearly liked the black... I mean, they knew I liked the black loved the black community a lot, and they, I keep saying, loved me back. They got me. But I had a really tough teacher named Joyce Ware, and, you know, she says, sometimes you overestimate yourself. Sometimes you, you seek... Uh, jobs that are not right for you. Sometimes you don't know your place. Sometimes you take up too much space. Uh, sometimes you're too self-important. And I want to sort of knock that out of you. I mean, it wasn't uh, in any... I thought it was the greatest thing, by the way. I mean, you talk about tough love. There was not an ounce of... Uh, can't explain it. There was not an ounce of denunciation. It was just, Eric, you're good and you got to, this is not okay. This is going to hurt the movement. This is going to hurt you as a field secretary. You have to change. And I did. You know, I mean, these are some struggles I had my whole life. You know, you, these struggles shape your whole life. But I did really good work there. And I'm, I'm shaped by my first three years in the black community that have shaped my political personality because I've always been a white person and a Jew in the black community. So we all have our scripts is the point. You know, I mean, I'm playing a different script than you, but the consciousness is that you are organizing yourself. Like you're an organizer working with Channing. Yeah. And you know Channing's got these problems, so you're trying to help him that's what I do sometimes. Eric, what are you doing? You know, I talk to myself like as if I'm Joyce Ware or if it, as if I'm my best self, mm -hmm. saying, what in the world were you thinking? Why in the hell would you do that? And then I try to meditate on it. So I try to get to the root of it. Um, so this class sounds great. Yeah, yeah, very good. Good. What's the biggest takeaway from the class right now that would lead to a changed behavior? Um, <clears throat> the biggest takeaway is, uh, because it's not like, so l let me do the, the caveat, that most people 
join a class and think, okay, a miracle is going to happen and all of these things are going to disappear. And the teacher is very, and even saying teacher is whatever. Um, But the teacher is very transparent about that. Don't come out of this class thinking all of a sudden you're not going to have any demons. That's that's not how it's going to work. Um, This class is really about being able to see them and sight comes choice. Um, Whoa, say that again? With sight comes choice. That's right. So oftentimes, um, what she explains is that when you're out of your window of tolerance, um, you, you, you're not fully there in your brain. Your body is taken over, your nervous system has gone into survival mode, and it's doing whatever it's been taught to do to survive. And so if you've been taught that survival means freezing, so you don't, you know... Um, Right. Uh, get into trauma because freezing sort of works, then that is what your body does. And so the biggest takeaway for me is even just seeing the pattern as it's happening so that I can then be able to make a different choice. Well, that's the voice of a co-director of an organization. You know, uh, I wouldn't have asked you here until... You know, we've been working, you know, you and I know each other's demons pretty well. <laughs> so we can talk to each other, you know, we, we can help each other. But we've been working on this for five years. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I love these classes, by the way. I'm, I've gone to somatics. I believe in all these things. I believe in Buddhism. I believe that they all have something to teach me that I'm still a, a, mainly a Marxist, Leninist, third world anti-imperialist you know those are my frames but psychology and group psychology and women's liberation and consciousness raising groups and uh, yoga and all that stuff is great and the thing that I would encourage people is you don't do it to get out of the other work you get it to integrate into who you are yeah, you know, I don't do yoga, so I'm not doing organizing. I do yoga, and I think about organizing. <laughs> or I've been lately working on not thinking. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I think so much. It's it's lately it's been not good. It, it, I can't stop it. So I've been listening to this great thing that Leanne showed me, a beautiful chorus mm-hmm. on um, Pandora. Mm-hmm. It's black women mainly doing self-affirming chants. Mm -hmm. It works. It works. It's unbelievable. I get into them and I get out of me and I just keep repeating. I should know them by now, but let go of anything that doesn't serve you. Or as a lot of, you're a good person, you know. So um, let's end with this. You know, no, seriously. Where do you see yourself in five years? Because you say I'm a visionary, so one way is you start looking. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Yeah. You know, so we just imagine for a minute where you want to be. Who would you be in five years? You'll only be 40, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Pretty good. <laughs> it's true. You so relaxed. Maybe, maybe 41. All right, 41. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. Um... Yeah, I mean, I will still be here fighting. I, you know, the thing that I keep thinking about is the Metro fight, and I, I think about it every day because that's we grew up fighting this. And so even in the limited time that I've been involved in the Bus Riders Union, I've seen the entire system of transportation change and become even bolder um, between 2007 and now, right? And so... Um, my when I think about five years, I think about we're going to have some form of victory on the public transportation system. There is no way that Metro is going to keep getting away with. To be quite frank, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name. <laughs> uh, Jim Crow, you know, like behavior yeah. towards black passengers and Latinx passengers, um, and. I get that it's not the same thing as the 60s. It's not the same thing as actual Jim Crow. 
But when I look at the metrics and I look at the exact behavior, it looks like exactly the same thing. And so five years from now, I'm expecting for Metro to change this whole centuries-long behavior of 53% every single year of black people are getting tickets. 53% every single year black people are getting ticketed. Uh, One thing I was uh, reflecting on on Saturday is that that 53 is steady. It's gone down from, you know, something like 27, 30,000 tickets um, to, I think in 2019, I think it was like 1,900 tickets. But of the 1,900 tickets, guess what? 53% of them still went to black people. (laughs) It makes no sense. No, you know it does. (laughs) I mean, it does. Yes, absolutely it does. And so that, I am hoping that in five years, we will make a significant change in that trend. Well, my last observation, thought, you're on Voices from the Frontlines. You're listening to Channing Martinez and Eric Mann, co-host of Voices and co-director of the Labor Community Strategy Center. Is the key to your personality development as a director is when I ask you on to be five years, you're not focusing on your psychology. You're focusing on a political victory that you can imagine and then your psychology has to be moving along with it. But for those out there that are focusing on psychology without movement, yoga without revolution, uh, there, there is no hope, folks. I'm not trying to be cool. But if you don't have a larger vision of what your world means, then you're just in your own head. And there is no solution inside your own head except your own madness. So getting out, you know, to empathize with others, to realize there's real, the people who are houseless have real names and they're just like you. Exactly. And they are in a hell of a lot of pain, they need our help. So, Channing, I think that was, I asked you where you're going to be in five years, and you say, we're going to get rid of the racist tickets. And we're going to have a major victory for black students in the, in the school where their reading levels are going to be over higher than white people, and they're going to be. 100,000 black people in the schools, not 50, and we'll turn this whole damn system on its head. Absolutely right. Well, this is the first of several conversations that Channing going to have about uh, leadership, strategy, um, movement building, organization, because I wrote a book called Playbook for Progressives, but that was done in 2007, if you can imagine. And we're going to rewrite it, and but this is going to be, this transcript is going to be part of our curriculum development for this summer at our National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing that I'll be doing with Akuna Uka and Channing. So everybody, you're on Voices from the Frontlines. This is your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. Let's enjoy Nina Simone for sure. So, hey everybody, this is Eric Does Karaoke. Today I'm going to do Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. You know, every day I go for a two-mile walk, I have my Beats by Dre on, I listen to the Five Satins radio, which is basically Bill Gardner's Rhapsody in Black, uh, R&B, and oldies. Now, I'm not saying I'm an oldie, but yeah, I am. So... I always think I'm really good, you know, so I'm, of course I'm singing along with Jimmy Ruffin, so I got to sound good. But I do want to sing, so hey, it's 8 in the morning, you want to do something interesting, we want to have more music on the show. I assure you we'll have great people later like Nina Simone, but I enjoy singing and some people have told me they enjoy me singing, so until I get a mass movement to stop me, I'm going to keep singing to you, okay? And thanks for caring about me. Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. Okay, Jimmy Ruffin, I'll do my best I can. As 
for a broken dream. I have stories of many things, but happiness is just an illusion filled with sadness and confusion. What becomes of a broken hearted? With love that's now departed I know I got to find Some kind of peace of mind The roots of love grow around But for me they come a-tumbling down Every day heartaches grow a little stronger can't stand this pain much longer I walk in shadows searching for light Cold and alone, no comfort inside Hoping and praying for someone who cares Always moving but going nowhere What becomes of the broken hearted who had love that's now departed I know I got to find some kind of peace of mind Help me I'm searching though I don't succeed But someone look there's a growing need Always lost there's no place for beginning all that's left is an unhappy ending Now what becomes of the broken hearted Who had love that's now departed I know I got to find some kind of peace of mind I'll be searching everywhere just to find someone to care I'll be looking every day, know I'm gonna find a way Nothing gonna stop me bound I will find a way so how I know I got to find Some kind of peace of mind I've been searching every To find someone to want to get Boom, boom, boom Boom, boom, boom And now The end is near Thank you for listening to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement-building show. I hope we woke you up and you smelled the revolution. Voices from the Front Lines needs your support, and KPFK needs your support. Call right now to 818-985-5735 to support this show and give the most generous contribution you can. Voices from the Front Lines is also syndicated via podcast on every podcast platform you can think of including apple Podcasts, soundcloud and even spotify go to our website now www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com to check out our podcast and while you're there sign up for our newsletter and send our website to 10 of your friends the more people that we can organize the more people that listen to voices from the front lines and the more we can build a organizer-based radio show. Thank you for listening. It never gets old. All power to the people. Keep KPFK strong on the web. Digital services cost KPFK real money. KPFK is more than what you hear on the radio. At kpfk.org, you can listen to our live stream along with our on-demand